Well, what would you think if you learned that a, a friend of yours never told his wife, I love you? Or never told her thank you for the ways that she serves him or, her, or their family? Or that he never praised her for anything? And when you asked him well, why he did not do these things, his response was simply, Oh, she knows I love her. She knows I am grateful. She knows how much I care. There's not, need, there's not a need to say anything. And what would you think if one of your friends never told her children, I love you, and never offered them praise for anything that they did well? Again, when you ask her why she does not do these things, she simply says, they can see I love them by all that I do for them. They can tell that I am pleased with them. There is no need to offer them praise. Well, you would probably be concerned for your friend, and you would probably be concerned for her children. I think we all recognize that it is not enough to simply feel love and gratitude or even to, to do kind things for others. Love and gratitude should be expressed by our words. In fact, if love and, and gratitude are never expressed, we doubt that the person even feels it at all. Now, if that is true, let me ask you this question. How often do you express your love and your gratitude towards the Lord? How often do you offer him praise? I think you all probably recognize the importance of expressing love and gratitude towards other people. But I think sometimes, sometimes Christians can ignore the importance of this in their relationship to God. They might tell themselves, oh, God knows I love him. He knows my heart. He knows how grateful I am for salvation. They come to church and perhaps sing half-hearted praises to God. They rarely pray to God in their own personal time, and, and when they do, they rarely offer prayers of, of thanksgiving and praise. And brothers and sisters, that should not be so. The famous author and theologian C.S. Lewis once said, We delight to praise what we enjoy, because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. In other words, a, a true heart of love and a truly grateful heart desires to offer praise. It takes delight in doing so. It completes the en enjoyment of whatever that person has received. And friends, God has designed you to communicate your love and thanksgiving to others. He has created you to do that. But more importantly, God has designed you, he has created you to communicate your love and your thanksgiving to him. God has created you to offer him praise. God has created you to worship. Well, this is what we see in our text for today. Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15. If you have not already, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. This is actually going to be our last sermon in Exodus for a while. Lord willing, we'll be back in a few months to keep going. We're going to take a break from Exodus following this. But if you remember back to, to last week, what we've done is we've gone from Israel enslaved in Egypt. That was the picture that we got in Exodus chapter 1. And we've come now all the way through the end of Exodus chapter 14, where God has delivered his people from their slavery in Egypt through mighty plagues. And even delivered them from the armies of Pharaoh and the Egyptians as they were being chased in the wilderness. That the, the armies of Pharaoh and the Egyptians were drowned in the Red Sea. And God's people have been delivered from their slavery, delivered from the land of Egypt through the Red Sea 
safe on the other side. And so the Lord has saved and redeemed Israel. And the response that we're going to read about here in Exodus chapter 15 is to sing a song of praise. Their response is one of worship to the Lord. And so follow along with me as I read from Exodus chapter 15. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. They said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. He threw Pharaoh's chariots and his army into the sea, and the elite of his officers were drowned in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Lord, your right hand is glorious in power. Lord, your right hand shattered the enemy. You overthrew your adversaries by your great majesty. You unleashed your burning wrath. It consumed them like stubble. The water heaped up at the blast from your nostrils. The current stood firm like a dam. The watery depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire will be gratified at their expense. I will draw my sword, my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. With your faithful love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. You will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. When the peoples hear, they will shudder. Anguish will seize the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be terrified. Trembling will seize the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan will panic. Terror and dread will fall on them. They will be as still as a stone because of your powerful arm until your people pass by. Lord, until the people whom you purchased pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your possession. Lord, you have prepared the place for your dwelling. Lord, your hands have established the sanctuary. The Lord will reign forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses with his chariot and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the water of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then the prophetess Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women came out following her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. As we think just about this glorious song of praise that Israel sings to the Lord, I just have two questions to ask from this text, and these questions will serve as the outline of the sermon. Those two questions are, what should be the content of our own worship? What should be the content of our worship? And second, what should be the attitude of our worship? What should be the content of our worship? What should be the attitude of our worship? And the the main idea from this text is that God's salvation should result in the humble, heartfelt, and hopeful praise of God's people. Christian, your salvation should lead you to praise God with a humble and heartfelt, with humbly, with a a heart that truly feels it, I guess. I don't know how to say you have heartfelt uh, and hopeful praise to the Lord, that that should be your response to your own salvation. And so first we want to look at this idea of what should the content of our worship be? But before answering that question, I want to briefly mention three things. First, 
you should notice that this song is an act of corporate worship by the nation of Israel, not simply individual worship. Now, it certainly has application for how we should think about worshiping the Lord as individual Christians. But most directly, this speaks to us as a church. It speaks to us as the gathered people of God. A second, like the Psalms that we find in the Bible, this song is really an extended prayer to God. A prayer and, and singing are in some respects two sides of the same coin. They are both intended to express our praise to God for who he is and what he has done. And they're both intended even in some respects to call on God to act on our behalf, to act in accordance with his character. And the third thing that I want to mention before we think about this idea of what should the content of our worship be, is I want you to guard against the tendency to think about worship as only what we do on Sunday mornings. As only what you do when we come and we sing together and pray together as a church. That worship is confined at 10 a.m. to noon on Sunday mornings. That is not the, the picture the Bible gives about worship. The Bible teaches that all of our lives are to be given in worship. Whatever we do is to be offered in worship to the Lord. So we thought a couple of weeks ago about Romans chapter 12, verse 1, which says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, whatever you do. This is your true worship. So our whole lives are to be lived in worship of God. But you might say that our, our corporate singing, our, our corporate prayer, prayers, even our individual singing, our individual prayers, are how we particularly put our praise and worship of the Lord into words. It's how we express it. It's one of the ways that we express it would be a better way to put it. And our corporate worship, as we gather as the people of God, as we gather as the church, gives a particular glory to the Lord as his people come together to visibly praise him, to visibly sing to him, to depend on him in prayer, to come and hear from his word. It gives a particular glory to the Lord. And so that is what we're really going to be thinking about, that aspect of our worship, this corporate worship today. We're going to be thinking some about our own individual prayers as well. So with those things in mind, let's turn our attention to the content of Israel's worship and what that means for our own worship. Well, the, the song that Israel sings here is a song of victory. It's not a victory that the nation of Israel achieved, but a victory that the Lord achieved for them. And in this song, two things come particularly into view. One, God's relationship to his enemies, his triumph over them. We really see that in the first 10 verses of Exodus chapter 15. And then second, God's relationship, not to his enemies, but God's relationship to his people. His leadership and his care of his people, of the nation of Israel. We really can see that in verses 11 through 18. And what we see in both of these sections is that Israel praises God for both who he is, who God is, and what God has done and what God will do. God has defeated his enemies. He has redeemed his people. He will safely guide them to his holy dwelling. God is a warrior. God is king. God is Lord. And so why do the Israelites sing? 
Well, look at verse 1 of Exodus 15. They sing because God is highly exalted. That is who God is. And because he threw horse and rider into the sea. That is what God has done. And this whole song speaks to God's greatness and power. The Israelites praise God because his right hand is glorious in power and it shattered and consumed the enemy. Verse 6. Verse 9, Pharaoh sought to come against the people of God with a, a sword. But we see in verses 8 and 10 that God divided the waters and defeated him and his army simply with his breath. Verse 11, Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you glorious in holiness? Verses 13 and 16, it is the strength and powerful arm of God that causes fear to fall on Israel's enemies and safely leads his people into his holy dwelling. And we could go on. There's more examples from this song. But the point is that Israel is praising God for his greatness. They are praising God for who he is. And particularly how that greatness has been displayed in his defeat of his enemies. In his past. In his present. In his future care for his people, Israel. The fact that he will lead them into his holy dwelling as they sing. I think Christians can sometimes be uncomfortable. They can be uncomfortable with the idea that God's glory is displayed in judgment. That God's majesty is shown by his wrath. Now we thought about this last week. It was inescapable from our our text from last week as God was... God said that he would harden the hearts of Pharaoh and his officials so that he might receive glory. In other words, God said that he was going to be glorified by drowning the armies of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. It was inescapable from our text last week. And it is the inescapable truth of this psalm. Over and over again throughout Exodus 15, Israel praises God for doing what? For throwing horse and rider into the sea. Friends, God is not just a God of love and mercy. God certainly is a God of love and mercy and compassion. But God is also a God of wrath. He is a consuming fire, a warrior who judges and defeats his enemy. He is the Lord of hosts. And this is part of his perfect character as well. They're no less part of his perfect character than his love and his mercy. So how are you, Christian, to think about the idea that God's glory is displayed when he pours out his wrath? That God is magnified and glorified by defeating his enemies. Well, first, I I think it is helpful to recognize that you desire justice in your own lives. You desire justice in your own lives. Some of you have not been fairly treated by your employers at every point of time in your lives. You wish that justice had been done. Some of you may be in that situation now and desire that justice be done. If you were to be robbed, some of you may have been robbed at some point in your life, but if you were to be robbed or if one of your loved ones were to be murdered, you would desire justice. You would desire that those who committed those crimes face justice, that they be punished. Brothers and sisters, we just tend not to put our own sin into these categories. 
We tend not to think of our sin in these ways. We don't think of ourselves as those who violate the law of God. But that is what sin is. And brothers and sisters, God is a God of justice. The book of Exodus has clearly showed how Pharaoh and the people of Egypt mistreated the people of Israel. They impressed them. They even tried to to kill their babies. Clearly shown that Pharaoh ignored the word of the Lord and rebelled against him. That's why plague after plague after plague came in the book of Exodus. But God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He has all authority. He is glorious in holiness. He is perfect. And all sin is rebellion against him and deserving of his judgment. God is the giver of life. And so death is the just punishment for rebellion against him. Just the same way as it would be just for someone who steals or kills in this world to be thrown into prison. So if you recoil at this idea of God's wrath being poured out on Egypt, or if you are horrified by it, or if you are uncomfortable with it, perhaps you do not have a full appreciation of the holiness of God. Or full appreciation of the horror of sin. God is a perfectly holy God. He's a perfectly just God in the same way he's a perfectly good God. And he is a perfectly loving God. But what does this mean for you? We think about this song that we see here in Exodus chapter 15. Is it okay for you to pray for God's justice or to give thanks for God's judgment as we see Israel doing here? Well, we certainly do want to praise God as a a God of justice. We even prayed about that this morning. And yes, in a general sense, I believe it is appropriate to pray for God's justice or to give thanks when God's justice is done, when we see justice being done on this earth. So we've prayed a lot for Afghanistan in recent months since the Taliban regained control of the country. That has been in the news a lot. I believe it's appropriate to plead for justice to reign in Afghanistan. To mourn the fact that the current government of Afghanistan does not seem to be acting justly towards many of its citizens. Christians, women, other minority populations within that country. I think it's right that we should mourn that and to pray that they would act justly. To ask that God would change that situation for us to desire justice to be done. If the Taliban were to fall, I believe it would be appropriate to thank God for that. But as I say that, I do want to add a few words of caution. You must always recognize that only God is perfectly just. And only he knows what is perfectly just in a situation. God only promises, the second thing you should keep in mind is that God only promises perfect justice at the end of days when Jesus comes again. He does not promise that it will be done on this earth. In fact, we know because of the horrors of sin that justice will often not be done. Perhaps justice will more often not be done than will be done on this earth. And third, you must guard against self-righteousness. Your hearts are deceitful. You're quick to overlook your own sin and find fault in others. You tend to think of yourselves as right and others wrong. And so praying for God's justice, particularly when it comes to matters that you are personally involved in, can quickly become a form of self-righteousness. It's another way of saying that it is far more dangerous to pray for justice when it comes to your own personal affairs 
when it comes to your own personal relationships than it is for something like Afghanistan. And for those reasons, I do not think you should pray for God to punish those you believe to be mistreating you. I do not think you should pray that. You should pray that God, that justice would prevail. You should pray that God would help you love your enemies instead. Love those who you may be believing are even mistreating you. This takes us to a second question you might have. Can you take justice into your own hands? God is a God of justice, so may you take justice, Christian, into your own hands. Well, no, Romans 12, 19 says this. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, Christians are called to leave justice in the hands of God and in the hands of God's appointed authorities, earthly governments. And now this means that we as Christians can, in some cases, turn to those earthly authorities. And perhaps if uh, somebody has stolen to you, you can turn to the courts to help resolve that matter. But Christians are called to love their enemies and do good to those who persecute them. Why? Because it is a demonstration of the love of God who loved you while you were yet a sinner. And you were an enemy of God. And then third, the hope of the Christian is in God's ultimate justice. The hope of the Christian faith is that God will one day, that he will one day set all things right. The sufferings and persecutions of this world will one day come to an end. Your hope is not in perfect justice on this earth. Instead, your hope is to be in the fact that a day of judgment and a day of justice is coming. Though the righteous are often mistreated on this earth, though the wicked do not always receive justice in this life and in some ways seem to do pretty well, sometimes even seem to prevail, they will one day face justice. The righteous will one day be vindicated. As the Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, we wait for new heaven, the new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Well, in the, the second point of the sermon, we're going to think more about God's redemption and care for his people that we really see in the second half of, of this song here, the song of victory from Israel. But before we get there, I want to stop and reflect on what we as the church should take away from the content of Israel's praises. Well, he took a slight detour to think about God's judgment particularly. But I want to come back to this idea that brothers and sisters like Israel, the content of our worship, the content of our worship should focus on who God is, what he has done, and what he promises to do. Who God is, what he has done, and what he promises to do. That should be the content of our worship, the focus of our praise. And so what does this mean for us as individuals? What does this mean for us as a church? Well, as it means as a church, we want to primarily sing songs that focus on those things. I, I hope that you have even seen that reflected in the songs that we have sung this morning. We sang, come people of the risen king. But why do we come? Why do the people of the risen king come? Well, as we sang, for his perfect love will never change and his mercies never cease. We sang how great is our God, where we sang about God's greatness, his beauty, his majesty, and his holiness. Saying, come praise and glorify. Oh, why do we come and praise and glorify the Lord? 
Because as we sang, He gives His grace in Christ. In Him, our sins are washed away. We've been redeemed through sacrifice. So let me take a moment here and just say thank you to the members of our music team. The members who are involved in sound, who get up here and play each and every week, who help lead us as a church so faithfully week after week, who help lead us to praise God in song. This takes a lot of work. It takes work behind the scenes. They, they practice each week to help prepare to lead us well. You do not see that practice take place. That's something you may not know is that the members of the, the music team help select the songs that will be sung each week. They put a lot of thought into trying to select songs that are going to be particularly magnifying God for the attributes that are brought out in the sermon text each week. And so I want to give them public thanks for the effort they put in each week to lead us in corporate worship. And I would encourage you to do the same. Uh, Particularly go up to the people who sang each week. Uh, Thank them for the way that they help lead us in corporate worship. Well, we also want to remember that, that prayer and praise or prayer and singing are something like two sides of the same coin. Uh, so we said this at the beginning of the sermon. And so what we see in Israel's song here should also influence our prayer life. It doesn't just influence what we sing. What we see here in Israel's song should also influence our prayer life. In other words, our prayers should not simply consist of us asking God to do things. We should also take time to praise the Lord. Now, this is what we try to reflect in our service each week as well. We have a prayer of adoration where we seek to try to praise the Lord for who he is and what he has done. We have a prayer of confession in which we confess the ways that we have fallen short of God's glory. That we have not given him the praise and the glory that he has deserved. And brothers and sisters, these things should not just be reflected in the church. They should be reflected in your personal worship as well. In your own personal prayer life. Your own prayer should not simply be a list of all the things that you want God to do for you. It should take time to praise the Lord for who he is, to give him thanks for what he has done. Now, if you're not sure how to do that, if you struggle to do that in your own prayer life, there's a, there's a couple things that you can do, a couple easy suggestions. One, simply pray scripture back to God. This is what we try to do in our prayer of adoration, actually, each week. We take a psalm, uh, usually a psalm at least, that speaks to God's glory, that speaks to what the Lord has done, his mighty deeds, and in some sense, we simply try to pray that back to God. Brothers and sisters, you can do the same thing. It is a wonderful thing to take God's word and simply pray it back to him. Use God's word. Use what you read as you read God's word as a guide to your own prayer life. Another helpful suggestion that I recently heard is to simply go through the letters of the alphabet and try to think of one characteristic of God that goes with each letter of the alphabet and offer God praise for that characteristic. So A, God is awesome. And so give God praise that he is an awesome God, that he is awe-inspiring. B, beautiful. Give God praise that you are beautiful in splendor and holiness, that all your ways are are beautiful. They magnify your glory. See, compassionate. God, I give you praise that you are a God of compassion and mercy and that you have been compassionate to me. If you can't think of anything for one letter, just skip it and go on. I don't know what you're supposed to do with X, but if anybody has a good suggestion, I am open to that. 
But I've started to do this actually sometimes when I go for a walk and or jog, and, and I found it to be a really helpful way just to focus my mind on the praise of the Lord. You just kind of keep going and going. And brothers and sisters, this is what we want the content of our worship to be. We want it to focus on who God is, what He has done, and what He has promised to do. But what about the attitude of our praise, the attitude of our worship? That's the, the second question that we want to reflect on from this song in Exodus 15. It's the second thing we want to focus on from Exodus 15. And brothers and sisters, the heart attitude of our worship should be humble, heartfelt, and hopeful. I'm sure there's more that could be said, but I wanted to give you three H's. Humble, heartfelt, and hopeful that describe the attitude of our praise and things that we see from Israel's praise in Exodus 15. So first, humble. Now, practically the only thing that Israel did through the entirety of their deliverance from Egypt was to sing to the Lord and what we find here. I guess you could add to that list that they painted the blood of the lamb on the doorpost uh, during the Passover. But basically that in singing is all that Israel does throughout the entirety of their deliverance. They did nothing to bring about the plagues that the Lord accomplished. In fact, they doubted the Lord during most of that. When Pharaoh and his army was approaching them at the shores of the Red Sea, what did Moses tell them? The Lord will fight for you and you must be quiet. Exodus 14, 4. Israel did absolutely nothing to save themselves. God did it all. And so their response was rightly not to try to perform any great acts of valor or service to earn God's favor, to show themselves worthy of God's love. That would be impossible. But they simply offer humble praise to the Lord. We we see this humility reflected in their song. They credit God as being the one who parted the sea and who threw horse and rider into the sea over and over again. It is the Lord who does this. It is the Lord who does this. God redeemed them with his strength. He is the one who will lead them. Brothers and sisters, think about this in relationship to your own salvation. You did nothing to save yourself. God did it all. Jesus did it all on your behalf. Jesus paid the penalty for sin in your place. He lived the perfect life that you could not live and died the death that you deserve to die. Jesus did it all. And so what should your response be? To offer him praise from a humble and a grateful heart. Brothers and sisters, you will never offer God true and heartfelt praise If you do not first offer him humble praise. You'll never offer God heartfelt praise unless you offer him humble praise. If you are not humbled by the fact that God was merciful to you, a rebellious and a wicked sinner, you will never offer heartfelt praise to God. Without humility, you will never offer a truly heartfelt or genuine thanks for Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. As verse 1 of the song says, God is exalted. God is exalted. He, he alone is worthy of all glory and honor and praise and worship. If you are humbled by who God is and what he has done in Jesus Christ, you will then delight to offer him praise. And friends, this is one of the reasons we spend so much time in prayer each service. It's one of the reasons we as a church think it's important to have a separate prayer service, a prayer and praise service outside of even our our normal service in which we pray to the Lord. 
It's because God is worthy of our worship and we are dependent on Him for everything. We are dependent on God to act. He alone is the one who will preserve the church, guard the church, strengthen the church, and grow the church. Brothers and sisters, prayer is the lifeblood of the church. Humility is to see our need as a church. Brothers and sisters, it is to see your own need to come to God in prayer and praise. You needed God to save you. We need God's continual sustaining grace. We are dependent on God to to act. And so we come to Him in prayer and we offer Him humble praise. Our prayer should be humble. Our praise should be humble. Our worship should also be heartfelt. A true praise and true worship is the overflow of a heart that loves God for who He is and is grateful for what He has done. So when you take a glass that is full of water. If you take a glass that is full of water, you take more water and you pour water in. Well, we know what happens to the water in the glass. It simply overflows the edges. Well, this is what our worship is to be like. All the good that God has poured into you should simply overflow out of your hearts, out of your mouths, out of your lives into praise and worship of the Lord. It is the overflow of what God has poured into you. It is the overflow of his mercy and his grace and his goodness and his love. As C.S. Lewis said, we delight, we delight to praise what we enjoy. If we enjoy God, if we enjoy the blessings of salvation, if we enjoy who he is and what he has done, we would delight to praise him. Now, we are a, a weak and a sinful people. Like There are times when you will not feel like praising God. There are times that I do not feel like praising God. Well, the, the right thing to do during those times is to praise him anyway. To continue to offer your praise and worship of God. He is no less worthy of it because you do not feel it. And during those times, you should praise God. Come to him in prayer. Ask that he would change your heart feelings. That he would change your heart attitude. And trust that your feelings will follow. But our goal, brothers and sisters, our, our goal is to offer joyful and heartfelt praise to God. Not a reluctant praise. We delight to praise what we enjoy. This is not what we see in our text. Israel is amazed at God's deliverance through the Red Sea. Their first response to what God does for them is to sing. They are overjoyed and so they sing. Look at verse 20. Miriam and the women of Israel do not just sing. They come to God joyfully with tambourines and dancing. Now, this this song that Miriam sings with the women of Israel seems to be essentially the same song sung by Moses and the Israelites. At least it repeats some of the same words. It may be that the the men sang first and the women sang something like a response to the Lord, kind of like we sometimes sing songs here in which we sing and there are some some lines that the women will, will echo in response. I'm not quite sure, but I believe the point in highlighting both the song of Moses And the song of of Miriam that we see in the final few verses of this text is to highlight the fact that the whole people of Israel, the whole people of Israel, men and women alike, were singing praises to God for what he had done. Men and women alike were singing praises to God for who he is. The point is that the joyful praise of God belongs to all people. And all people are to offer their praises to God. We see the whole nation of Israel singing in response to the Lord. 
Brothers and sisters, that means you all should joyfully sing to the Lord during our corporate worship. I feel free to raise your hands, throw in a little clapping and dancing as well. If you've got a tambourine, you can go for that as, as well. Uh, I'm sort of joking, but not really. I know I'm not the most expressive person in the world. I don't come from the most expressive culture in the world. But you should feel free to joyfully praise the Lord. I'm truly grateful for our music team who leads us so well each week. But the purpose of corporate worship is not just to come and listen to others sing to you. That is not the purpose of, of corporate worship. The purpose is to offer corporate praise to God for all of God's people to be singing in response to him for who he is and what he has done. To sing to God, but also to encourage one another as our voices rise in praise to the Lord. So for as much as I, I love our music team who gets up and leads us so well each week, I want your goal each week to be to drown out the voices and to drown out the music that you hear coming from the stage. You are to offer joyful praises to God. Praise of God belongs to all of God's people. And friends, if this type of, of heartfelt and joyful praise feels foreign to you, you're never moved by the praise of the Lord. If corporate worship is always a, a ritual, and it is never a delight, perhaps you should ask whether you truly know the Lord. Now, like as I just said, there are going to be times that we feel like this. But if that is never the attitude of your heart, brothers and sisters, you might should ask, do I know the Lord? Have you recognized your need for a Savior and experienced His salvation? If not, the answer is humility. It's to humble yourself by confessing your sin and placing your faith, your trust, and your confidence in Jesus Christ. Our worship is to be humble. Our worship is to be heartfelt. And finally, our worship is to be hopeful. Brothers and sisters, we worship in hope. We do not just thank God for what he has done, but we give him praise and we look forward to what he will do. We look forward to the fullness of our salvation. We look forward to eternity in hope for when Jesus comes again. The hopefulness of our worship is rooted in who God is. God is a promise-keeping God, a God of all power, a God of all, all might, who holds the world in his hands. It is rooted in what God has done. We are hopeful about what God will do because he's a promise-keeping God who is glorious in holiness and he is unmatched in power. And also because he is a God who saved us and redeemed us and who, is, who has proven his faithfulness throughout all generations. Again, this is what we, we see in Israel's worship. God's redemption is the source of their ongoing confidence. Look at verses 14 through 16 of this song that Israel sings. Israel knew that the news of God's deliverance from Egypt would strike fear in the hearts of their future enemies. Philistia, Edom, Moab, the Canaanites. As we see in verse 16, the, the fear of the Lord that falls on these other nations will give Israel a safe passage in the wilderness. It will give them safe passage to the promised land. The fear of the Lord are going to come on these enemies of Israel so that they do nothing and Israel passes safely by. The ultimate hope of Israel, as we read in verses 13 and 17, is that God will guide them to his holy dwelling and he will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of his possession. 
And now in the, the near term, the people of Israel are looking forward to their arrival at Mount Sinai and, and beyond that to the Promised Land, to the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey that we have read about over and over again in Exodus that God promised to the people of Israel. But the language of this song seems to be pointing beyond the land of Canaan, to the place of eternal rest, the place of God's holy dwelling. The place of his eternal rule where he will reign forever and ever in justiceness, justice and righteousness. Seems to be pointing to the new heavens and the new earth. And I think this is confirmed by that text that Juliet just read for us from Revelation 15. You can turn back with me for a, a moment to Revelation 15 or open up your bulletins where you will find that text. But I want to read the first four verses again of Revelation chapter 15. Oh, this is uh, one of the visions that the Apostle John sees in Revelation. Then I saw another great and awe-inspiring sign in heaven, seven angels with the seven last plagues, for with them God's wrath will be completed. I also saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had won the victory over the beast, its image and the number of its name, were standing on the sea of glass with harps from God. They sang the song of God's servant Moses. And the song of the Lamb, great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you, because your righteous acts have been revealed. Brothers and sisters, what is the picture being painted in these verses in Revelation? In the first few verses, we see a picture of God's wrath that will be completed. It will fall on Satan and the beast and, by extension, all his followers. In fact, in verse 7 of, of Revelation 15, these plagues are said to be full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Sound familiar after we just read through Exodus chapter 15. And what will these latter-day plagues accomplish? Well, like God's deliverance at the Red Sea, they will accomplish victory for the people of God. Like the plagues of, that fell on Egypt, they will accomplish victory for the people of God. We see this in verse 2. And so the people of God are standing on a sea of glass with harps from God. And that gets even more fully explained in verse 3, in which we see in response to God's victory, in response to this victory, God's people will sing the song of Moses. As a direct reference to our text here in Exodus 15 that is called the, the Song of Moses. God's people will sing this victory song, the Song of Moses. They also sing the Song of the Lamb. They will sing the Psalm of the Lamb. The Passover Lamb, Jesus Christ, that we thought about a few weeks ago, that we think about each and every week. They will sing a song of victory for God's triumph of the greatest enemy of all, Satan, sin, and death. They will sing the song of Jesus' victory at the cross in his final victory over all the forces of evil and all the forces of darkness. Jesus defeated Satan and sin and death at the cross, but the fullness of that victory and the fullness of our salvation will be experienced when Jesus comes again. The message of Revelation is that Jesus will one day return to earth as a conquering king. That Jesus will return to earth as a conquering king who will triumph over all his enemies and his people will be safely brought into the new heavens and the new earth, the place of their eternal rest. They will dwell in the presence of God forever and ever. 
And God's enemies will look just like those who are on the shores of the Red Sea. Those bodies that just piled up on the shores of the Red Sea. Uh, That is what it's going to look like at the end of days when Jesus comes again. And in response, God's people will sing to him a victory song. They will praise him forever and ever. They will sing the song of God's servant Moses. And they will sing the psalm of the Lamb. And they will sing that forever and ever and ever. Brothers and sisters, that is what we get to look forward to. Revelation 15 is simply what Exodus 15 is ultimately pointing us towards. Exodus 15 simply points us forward to Revelation 15. Just like Egypt was decisively defeated at the Red Sea, Jesus defeated sin and death decisively at the cross by paying the just penalty for sin that you and I deserve. He was raised from the dead three days later, proving the effectiveness of that sacrifice, and he is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. But just like Israel was not immediately ushered into the promised land when they got through the Red Sea, Well, we were not immediately ushered into the new heavens and the new earth when God saved us. We were not immediately ripped up from this earth and and taken to heaven. So Israel looked forward to their entrance into the promised land. They were hopeful and confident that God would deliver them safely because they had seen the mighty works of God. They had come to know who God was. He had delivered them through the Red Sea. And brothers and sisters, in a similar way, we are hopeful that God will deliver us that Jesus will one day in return and we will be welcomed into God's eternal kingdom because we have experienced the salvation of the Lord. We have been the recipients of God's mighty acts. Because of God's grace, we have come to know him for who he is. Brothers and sisters, your confidence is based on the fact that God will ultimately triumph and he will bring you into his eternal rest. It is that fact that enables you to endure trials and suffering now because you know your future is secure. God has the same power over your enemies even on this earth as he had over the enemies of Israel, Philistia, and Edom, Canaan, Moab. So it's for that reason you need not fear the attacks of the enemy. His end is sure. Does not mean nothing bad will ever happen to you in this world, but nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus will return and deliver you safe and secure at last. So until that day, brothers and sisters, what are you to do? Are you to offer humble, heartfelt, and hopeful praise to God for who He is and what He has done? Brothers and sisters, this is a foretaste of eternity because this is what you are going to do forever and ever and ever. We won't be hopeful anymore. That hope will be met. We'll continue to offer humble and heartfelt praise to God for all eternity. Let's pray.